to The Destination Change, a podcast where we talk recovery, treatment, and more. I'm your host, Angie Fiedler-Sutton, and I'm with the National Behavioral Health Association Providers. Our guest for this episode is Pete Nielsen. Pete is the President and Chief Executive Officer for the California Consortium of Addiction Programs and Professionals, otherwise known as CCAP, CCAP Credentialing, CCAP Education Institute, and the National Behavioral Health Association of Providers, NBAP, and is also the publisher of Counselor Magazine. We'll have to ask later if there's anything you don't do, Pete. (laughs) He has worked in the substance use disorders field for 20 years. In addition to associate management, he brings to the table experience as an interventionist, family recovery specialist, counselor, administrator, and educator with positions including campus director, academic dean, and instructor. Pete is the secretary of the International Certification and Reciprocity Consortium, otherwise known as ICNRC. He is a nationally known speaker and writer published in numerous industry-specific magazines. He holds a Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology and a Bachelor of Science in Business Management. Welcome to Destination Change, Pete. Thank you, Angie, and I'm glad to be here. So, you know, as I joked, is there anything you don't do? <laughs> I don't know yet, but we'll find out. <laughs> so the point of this podcast, as mentioned, is we talk about the recovery and the recovery space and treatment. Tell me a little bit kind of your history with the recovery space and how you got involved into it and your background there. So I guess we'll, we'll start from the beginning and no, we're not going to go when I was five years old, but I'll tell you, I initially went to school and I was going to go to school for business and first day of school you're always a little disorientated and you just you're trying to figure your bearings and so I had all business classes because I thought I was going to go major in business and probably eventually go on and get my MBA so I was at a a junior college and I took a right when I should have took a left and I landed myself into a class and I sat in this class and they're talking about drugs alcohol and I was like wow, this is kind of cool. And so I sat there a little longer. I mean, my first thought was, are they going to give me some free samples here? Or, or, you know, what kind of class is this? So I ended up finishing that class and I made a decision that day that I would drop all of my business classes and I would pick up drug and alcohol counseling classes. And so, you know, that was my initial push into becoming a drug and alcohol professional. Now, if I recall correctly, you yourself are a person in recovery. Am I correct? I am. And as of February 15th, I just celebrated 27 years of recovery. Congratulations. How did that affect your involvement with the field? How is that? You know, there's obviously a difference between uh, being a peer recovery and not being a peer recovery. So talk a little bit about, about that. That's a good question, Angie. And I think for me... Um, when I started, you know, they didn't really have much, you know, in, in the pure realm other than, you know, 12 steps and, and, and being a part of that and, and, uh, sponsoring people or, or being a sponsee. So really there was just being a, a drug and alcohol counselor, uh, professional, you know, so for a long time, and I think it is still true, my lifestyle and my mindset is I'm a person in recovery. So that doesn't change. But when I used to work with individuals, I didn't necessarily self-disclose that I was in recovery. I'll tell you, most people, would, would there's some attunement that happens when people realize they get you 
And when they realize they get you, they, they feel connected to you. And that really is, is more important as a feeling rather than coming out the gate in that rapport building saying that I'm in recovery or not in recovery. Sometimes it's a barrier. Uh, sometimes people are put off by that. And yes, it can give hope, but it also can push people away. So what I found in my professional life is I would rarely just self-disclose about my own personal recovery. And, you know, all I'm doing is it, I don't find anymore. So I'm doing administrative work and, you know, I, I self-disclose all the time that I'm in recovery. For the most part, it's a good, you know, a lot of people are very open about it. There are areas where there still is discrimination and stigma around substance use disorder. I'll tell you, if you go to the grocery store and I uh, am in the 10 items or less and I'm standing there and somebody strikes a conversation with me and say, hey, what do you do? And I tell them what they do. I get typical, typically three reactions and uh, they will say, oh, wow, you, you, you're you know, I have a brother's cousin friend that has a drug problem or had a drug problem and they'll be excited. And then you'll get another uh, different set of people that if I say, you know, what I do, they will, you know, hide their beer that they have in the item or they'll put it behind their back or they'll move away or they'll just stop talking to me and turn their back to me. I've had all of that happen. And then the other group, you know, would be very stigmatizing and, and, and just very, oh, well, I don't believe in all that, you know, yeah, addiction stuff and it's a choice. And so I'd, I'd get, you know, all of that stigma and, and that negative talk from those individuals, you know, but you always realize that there's still more work that we have to do for people to uh, accept addiction as a disease. And it's not about a personal choice. It is a disease. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that that's probably my frustration that I get when, when people do not understand the disease of addiction and um, they're still derogatory. And so if I said that, um, Hey, I, I work with diabetes patients, I would get usually positive response. If I say, Oh, I work with picking a different chronic uh, uh, disease. They would usually give you, usually they, there'd be a lot more interest. They would, you know, probably wouldn't talk to you like, Oh, I, you know, it's interesting when you say about the disease addiction, there's a lot of times more negative reactions based on that disease. You talk a little bit about stigma and the recovery industry and how uh, people don't always just see it as a disease. Now, you've been in the industry for quite a while. That's obviously been changing. But what do you feel is the best way to kind of move forward on that change? I think to move forward... Besides, you know, anti-stigma campaigns is really for people to look at individuals that suffer from disease of addiction as people, not as their ailment, but as people. And, and, and I think until we get to that point, you know, when we move away from the judgment, and I think the tricky thing with, with addiction is there's some guilt and shame around that uh, for individuals or some fear that they may have that. And it's alive and well in advocacy. I'll tell you, it would be a different world if politicians really understood that people in recovery vote and what we believe in, you know, and with somebody with a lifestyle and a mindset of recovery, that's definitely how I vote. And, and I look at things around that. How are you treating the addiction? How, what are your views? And I, I put a lot of emphasis in that. And I think that if politicians, I think if we really push our might, as people in recovery 
and not be anonymous, I think we would have a lot more results when it comes to what happens. And, and I'm not saying that, it, that we don't have a lot going on now, but I think that there's still a lot of stigma and pushback as far as the disease of addiction. And there are people talking about fighting opioids, but that's very different than them treating the disease of addiction. So just because they're talking about, you know, uh, fentanyl and, you know, deaths um, by overdose or poisoning doesn't mean they're completely talking about the addiction and, and, and or recovery in the solution. So I think we do have a ways. And I think that if we have people that are in recovery would come out and say that I'm in recovery and I vote, that makes a big difference. And you talking to your local politicians about being in recovery and the importance of, you know, putting, breaking barriers around that. I know there's a lot of barriers being, being broke in employment settings right now, as far as people being out and, and having recovery for the work, workplaces or, you know, you know, recovery open workplaces. I think that's important as well. That's uh, normalized that people are, they can, you know, uh, change their lives. And so I think we still have a long way to go. What would you say is, would be some of the first steps for someone who is not in the industry if they wanted to help change how people perceive addiction? And I would really go to their motivation for that as far as really understand, you know, the subject of addiction and do some research and really talk with people that are in recovery that have long-term sustained recovery, really get an understanding of, of their position. And I mean, there are a lot of people that mean well, but if they're not well informed, it could do more harm than good. For someone in the industry yourself, what are some of the resources that you go to on a regular basis in terms of helping people through recovery and treatment? I would say that you know, NBHAP is, is a resource. And I, I think uh, SAMHSA is a great resource. So is uh, Faces and Voices, as well as American Society of Addiction Medicine. Those are all great resources that I would recommend. Also, uh, the Partnership to uh, End Addiction, they're another resource, and also End Overdose. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Destination Change poster. Uh, you helped create that, am I correct? That is correct. Um, tell me kind of the origin of that, where that came from. Obviously, this podcast is somewhat based off of that. Uh, for those who are not familiar with the poster, I will make sure that it is listed in the show notes. But just kind of where it came from, what made you decide to create, you know, have the people create that, that kind of stuff. It initially came out an idea for um, a, uh, there was a contest about a poster and, and, we were trying to come up with a concept and idea and, and the map idea came out about in this contest. But really what came to my mind with this is there's so many silos and it's so confusing. There isn't one place where I can tell somebody that has a addiction problem or a family member that, that has a loved one that has an addiction problem of where you could go to get all your choices of what you can do laid out for you. So whether that be harm reduction, whether that be prevention, whether that be um, recovery or treatment, 
you know, and what are all the choices when they're medication assisted recovery, uh, recovery community organizations, uh, treatment, inpatient, outpatient, all of those different options. It seems that when you go to a particular organization, many times the option is their organization versus outlining what all the options are. So, you know, if you go to harm reduction, you're a customer for harm reduction. You go to residential treatment, you're a customer for residential treatment. If you go to outpatient, you're a customer for out, uh, customer for outpatient. So I, I, I really thought that, that there needed to be something that would, would look at all the options and that so somebody could have a, uh, pictorial representation of what their options are. And so we have this, this treasure map themed, um, you know, option list that people can look at. And one of the things I realized is when we go from the different silos, whether it be harm reduction or prevention or treatment or recovery, it seems that when we go across all those, there's that the language barriers, meaning, um, you know, the different terminology between changes. So individuals that do harm reduction don't necessarily speak the same language as individuals that, that do uh, treatment. So, there needed to be something that would bind all those together. So I did some research and I looked and say, what what would all of those agree upon as some type of basis of information? So I, I, I was looking at the trans theoretical, which is also known as the stages of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance. It's generally accepted by all those different silos. And so I use that as a basis for the map to kind of guide somebody from the addiction island onto the, the whatever island they go to, recovery island, treatment island, and there's little white dots for them to go through that. And and really, stages of change are not really what I base it off of. It's actually the, the little known processes of change, which is, you know, uh, the other part of, of that, which really fits all of that in the map. So, People don't necessarily know about the processes of change. They know the stages of change. So I use the stage of change to inform, you know, really the concepts of the processes of change. And that really navigates because when you look at the processes of change, it really talks about, you know, prevention and, and harm reduction. You know, you could see all of those areas within the processes of the processes are just simply how you move individuals from one uh, stage to the next of the stages of change. You know, so the stages is not something that you do, but what you can do is the processes is help you. So, uh, for example, if somebody is in, at the, in pre-contemplation, if you give them information and that information could help them to make a decision or, or to even, you know, to push them into contemplation because they have information. So, you know, that's a, a way that you can do by informational campaigns which help individuals to start to contemplate, to move from pre-contemplation to contemplation. And contemplation is just you make a decision if, if, if you want to change something or not. So, you know, I thought that that is the best idea to be able to kind of lay this out. Um, and so we have very simple statements on there for people to relate to, you know. So if it's a pre-contemplation, I don't have a problem is a simple statement that's on there. So somebody can say, oh, yeah, I relate to that. So I'm in pre-contemplation. So uh, if contemplation, we have a simple statement on there that says, I think I have a problem. Somebody says, yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. 
because they may not relate to the, the definition or 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 the word contemplation, but they can relate to the thought or emotion that that we have on there. So that's how we utilize it to kind of help individuals to kind of find out where they're at in the stages or, or where they think they're at in the stages, kind of. And and the map is a guide for somebody else to help walk them through their different options and choices. And like a journey, it really relies on the heavily the fact that there isn't a straight point that you can go back and forth between the different stages and, and that it's not something that is like the stages of grief that you can't just go straight through them, that you can, like with the stages of grief, go back and forth between the two. Is that something that you see a lot of in the industry or is that something relatively new, the idea that you can go back and forth? Well, I, yeah, and, and usually where they go back and forth is usually when they, you know, use alcohol or drugs or have, you know, a setback or a reset or, you know, I, I know that, you know, some of the words we're, we're, we're looking at changing because it has some negative connotation. But I think that, you know, because we want to move it to where right now it's, it seems like that people can't make mistakes when they're in recovery. And, and I shouldn't call them mistakes, but that have setbacks or resets or, 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 you know, and I think like, you know, terms like relapse, people are pushing, moving away from because they feel like, like, oh, well, you failed the program or you, you know, and I think that when they toggle between stages, I'll, I'll use that, uh, you know, with, with something that, that, that happens in like they use drugs or, or alcohol or it, it changes and they can go to creep. They can go back to pre-contemplation, contemplation. They can go back to preparation. They can, you know, toggle in between those, you know, based upon where they're they're at. So I don't believe that when somebody uses a substance, they go back to zero. That is a, a belief of some people, but I don't believe that myself. I do, you know, everything that you've gained, you don't lose. The, the problem with our thought is when somebody uses a substance, they say, you have to go back to zero. It's basically like that old monopoly where you go directly to jail. You do not pass go. Uh, you basically lose everything. And, and I don't believe that, that that's true. I believe that, you know, the information you've gained and, and the recovery and the strength that you've gained, you don't lose that. I also believe that the strengths that you had, uh, some of the strengths that you had in your addiction does translate over to your recovery. They're, they, they change. They look differently. But they are still some of the same strengths. Some of the same strengths that I had when I was using, I still use in my recovery. My same relentless uh, pursuit for change or to, to do something is still here. It used to be for the bad, and now it's for the good. My passion, my that is still here. That was there <laughs> in my addiction, but it didn't it didn't land me to good places and land me into things like shiny handcuffs. You know, so I think really when we look at that, we need to take that to error is human and, and to, to learn from, from our patterns of behavior or learn from mistakes or that that should be acceptable. I'll tell you. So let's say I'm on a diet and you pick one, paleo, South beach, you name it, whatever. And I say to you, Hey, uh, I'm trying this thing and, you know, I, I just, I, I had one too many, I don't know, uh, 
uh, whatever, you know, that you're not supposed to have on that diet, people will typically respond empathetically. Oh, well, that's okay. You, you know, and they'll be encouraging and they'll, but you say that with addiction and you say that, oh, I relapse or I use a substance. It, there's almost this, this parental type of thing. You're like, oh, well, you know, you should know better or you, you failed or, you know, and, and it should be looked more positively and not like what, you know, what you lost, but what you gained and kind of what helps you move you forward. I think when we are challenged and we struggle, I think it helps us to be better people. And I think that there's, there's a part where you can move forward and, and it's not a negative thing. And I think until we start looking at it as a gain rather than a loss, then I think that, that, that really, I think it would change. I mean, you know, I see this in sports sometimes, not always, but in sports is like when the team has a, you know, a bad season, they will, you know, start building and learn from their mistakes or learn from their challenges and then, you know, build that and, and you know, they call it like a rebuilding season or they, they, they're, you know, and, and sometimes that's what you need in your own life. And, and, and that's the same thing in recovery. So maybe it's just a rebuilding season on that. It's not looked at a negative thing. It's, it's looked actually as a positive thing, you know, and I, I look at some of the teams and even one of the teams uh, that I support, you know, I, you know, I've heard that before. Oh, and everybody's like, yeah, they're rebuilding. Yeah, they're going to be greater now. Now they're going to be better. I think if we look at, um, you know, uh, relapse or, or when people have challenges, we look at that as more of a positive spin and rebuilding. I think we would all be better and individuals would be better, but they don't have to carry all this guilt and shame. What are the things that the uh, stages of change talk about? And we also, I know that you have used as kind of a, a resource is the idea of recovery capital. For those who are unfamiliar with the concept, kind of go into what, how you define what recovery capital is and how that, in, you know, interacts with the idea of recovery and addiction. So recovery capital is really your strengths. It's, it's really your strengths that, that help you in your recovery. And it's breaking in, in, into, I'm going to synthesize it into three different. It's social, personal, and community. And so, you know, social is things that, that the people that are around you, what you have to be able to help propel you forward, you know, the strengths that you have. You know, personal is typically resources, things that you have. Your infrastructure, your community that you have is your other capital all of those are, are really the forces that help propel you forward and really build up an immunity and a, resist, a, a resistance to negative things in your life. Uh, or I wish you'd say, maybe I should say barriers and, and unmet needs. And I think those that kind of counterbalance those. And so, you know, as you build upon your strengths to be able to cope with things and deal with things more. Um, the more recovery capital that you have, the more recovery capital you have, it increases your ability to deal with situations or, or, or circumstances that are in your life. And I think when it, when it comes down to it, that's, that's really what recovery capital is, is it's, it's a way for, for individuals to improve their, uh, recovery and to help them to build a better them will build a better me, you know, um, uh, and, and always in that progress and growth and recovery capital helps to do that because 
it we it's not intuitive to know what you need to work on in your own life to grow to to become uh, uh, to do better and be better in your own life. Recovery capital is just a tool to help you kind of gauge. It's 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 kind of like if I was to drive a car without any instruments in the car, no gas gauge, no check engine light, none of that. If I would just drive a car without that, I might run into some issues. I could still drive the car, but if I don't have indicator lights and if I don't have a speedometer, I might get a ticket. You know, especially if I have a lead foot or you know all of those things. And so recovery capital is really that instrument gauge for individuals in their recovery. Um, yes, they can go through recovery out without it. And yes, there's great tools out of it, but this is a great instrument panel to be able to gauge where they're at and where, where they can, can improve and to enhance their own life and their own well-being easily by working on their, their recovery capital. Do you have a go-to tool that you like to use personally, or is that like choosing a favorite child? <laughs> so I'll tell you, as far as assessing or, or screening for that, there's there's three tools that I, 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 I like that, that I think are important. It's the recovery screener, or also known as the RCA. There's the RCI, and then there's there's also RECAP. Those are all great tools um, uh, to be able to utilize. I'll tell personally for like, things that help me build my recovery capital, I would say like I- I- any of the R1 learning cards, uh, I'll tell you like values and all of, I'll tell you personally, I've benefited from utilizing those tools to help me in my own recovery. Boundaries, I mean, all of those I think are incredible. Really for me, that material um, is super beneficial. I mean, I've trained and, and, and helped people through it, you know, but I'll tell you that that has been a tool that's helped me and, and even helped my family. I mean, there's a career uh, interest one that, uh, that I, uh, you know, gave to my son, you know, and it really helped him kind of decide where he wants to be in his career. So, you know, that's my go-to as far as a, a tool or material is, you know, the R1 learning platform. Now let's talk a little bit about your work with CCAP. You've been with them for quite a while. Give me your elevator pitch as to what C- who CCAP is and what they do. Well, this is probably the shortest that you heard me answer any <laughs> question, Angie. And, and, and I'll tell you, I, I uh, summarize everything that CCAP does with this. Their core purpose is to make the world a better place by eliminating devastation caused by addiction. That's a mic drop right there. Well, so I mean, I, you do a little bit of everything. How did you get involved with them? I mean, obviously they hired you, but I mean, were you aware of them beforehand? Talk a little bit about your history in terms of how you got in. Before CCAP came to be, there's two other organizations that came together, and um, I was on the board of one of those organizations, and then I ended uh, ended up working for that organization, and and then now we know those two organizations came together as uh, CCAP, but I'll tell you, I, I wanted to be involved. I mean, I was, I think I was running programs at the time before I became on the, the board of that former organization. And, and, and I had, you know, I was trying to get involved and be a part of the, 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 the larger solution, 
and I was passionate about the Apollo Larger Solution. And they gave me an opportunity, and I ended up becoming on the board. And that kind of led to a lot of things. And I, I, I think that if, if, if one thing that I, I want people to take away from this message is get involved. Get involved and, and be a part of the solution. And there's lots of uh, ways and lots of organizations to be involved with. But, you know, for me, that has really been a great outlet is, is, is to get involved, to, to let my passion have a release, that I'm part of the change. It's not just about all the problems in the world, but I'm actually part of the solution. You know, there's so much grief and so much trauma and so much challenges out there. And it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's just overwhelming, but I can rest assured that I am part of the solution and I'm moving towards something better and, and I'm a part of that, something better. And I know that as, as CCAP, we may have made tremendous headway in change for not just California, but for the nation. And I am so humbled and glad to be a part of, you know, an organization that helps move forward change. And if you were to wake up tomorrow with the ability to make that change, what would be the one thing that your first thing that you would want to change about the addiction treatment industry? The opportunity for anybody to get help without be putting on a wait list. I I believe in a concept uh, called human redemption value. And basically it's, it's, um, the opportunity for anybody to be able to get um, on-demand treatment for addiction or recovery or services or help um, without barriers. You know, it's time for the system to serve the individual rather than the individual serving the system. What would you say is the biggest barrier? Would it be stigma or something else? Money's always a problem, but I tell you, silos... And, you know, the, the lack of a, of a cohesive system and, you know, I think is one of the biggest barriers and individuals not being plenty with all their options and, and, and professionals that don't understand what the, all the options are and giving them the options, you know, that I think is part of the problem is a, is a lack of information, sometimes misinformation, but a lack of information for professionals to point individuals in the right direction. Well, with regards to that and information, we can kind of segue a little bit into your work with Counselor Magazine. That's obviously a good resource for information. Um, tell me a little bit more about Counselor Magazine and, and your involvement with that and what exactly it does. So I'm the publisher of, of Counselor Magazine. And, you know, it's funny because there's those commercials where, you know, I'm not just a member. I'm also a uh, user of X product, you know. Or I'm not just the CEO, I'm the user of the X product. I fell in love with Council Magazine way before I was the publisher of Council Magazine. Council Magazine has been around for 50 plus years. And um, I used to read the magazine and I used to, it used to be the go-to resource for me in my life as a counselor was that magazine. And then I ended up writing for it and I was so excited and happy to write for the magazine. Uh, and when we ended up taking over the magazine, it was a dream come true for me is, you know, this thing that I absolutely love. It was, a, it was a, a precious resource. I get to now be the gatekeeper and the steward for that, for that resource for others can, can benefit from. 
that magazine. You know, there can be no greater honor than that is, is being able to carry that on. And, uh, you know, it's an internationally recognized magazine that helps behavioral health and addiction professionals and give them, you know, the latest, greatest information so that they can do better and be better in their profession. Well, thank you, Pete, for being our guest today. Where can people find more information about you and the organizations you are with? They can go to uh, ccap.us or they can go to calrecovery.org. Both of those uh, are great resources and great information. Also, uh, counselormagazine.com is the other resource I would recommend. Thank you very much for staying with us today. You've been listening to Destination Change. Our guest today was Pete Nielsen. Thanks for being here. Our theme song was Kita by Sun Nation and used via a Creative Commons license by the Free Music Archive. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts so we can get more listeners. In the meantime, you can always see more about the podcast, including show notes and where else to listen to it, on our website, www.nbhap.org. If you have questions for the podcast, please email us at info at nbhap.org. Thanks for listening.